I would like to ask you all to open up your Bibles in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, as we continue to take a look into this love letter between Paul and his beloved church in Philippians, which is writing from jail. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Unity. It's the cry of movements throughout our society. Unity. It's the subject of political speeches. Unity. It's the name given to a basketball court in the 2021 NCAA basketball tournament. Unity. It's the call of our day. And with so many calls for unity, the message sometimes rings hollow. Sometimes it falls on deaf ears. And I'll be honest, that's me too. We can all agree, I think, that unity uh, is sometimes not good if the message is not good or the movement is not good. But we generally think that unity is a good thing. It's a good thing to seek and desire after. After all, we live in a country named the United States of America, a country founded upon the idea that free and independent states could come together for a common purpose and a higher good and to unite as one nation. Unity is a worthy aspiration. So unity is not just the call of our day, though. It's the call of this text. It's the central call in Philippians 2, in this section. Concerned by emerging factions in the Philippian church, Paul here issues a stirring address to his partners in the gospel, urging them one more time to live out the gospel and to be totally unified. We see the central call in verse 2 where Paul exhorts the Philippians with a plural imperative. Y'all, All y'all, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now this exhortation echoes the exhortation that we heard last week in our text. Remember what Paul wrote in verse 27. 
He longed to hear of the Philippians' unity, that they would be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So clearly, unity of the church, or lack thereof, is a prevailing concern of Paul's as he reiterates one more time his desire to hear that this church is united. My friends, I'd tell you this morning, we would be wise to learn from Paul's priorities. It's not Paul's release from prison or his life that is his primary concern. It's the spiritual progress of the church. You notice that Paul's joy is not incomplete due to his imprisonment, or that he's not enjoying the comforts of this world. His joy is incomplete due to the incomplete unity of the church. This type of exhortation that Paul issues here conjures up a picture of a sort of exhortation that children might hear from their mother. When mom gets word from the babysitter that, their chil- that her children are being little terrors, and we all know what that's like, she may call home at that point and, among other things, exhort the children to make her proud. It's not as if she's not proud of them, but their behavior is keeping her from experiencing a full measure of pride in them at that moment. And because the children respect their mother and they want to please her, such an exhortation would motivate them to change their behavior, to stop being little terrors. So similarly, knowing the love and respect that the Philippian church has for Paul, he seeks to motivate them on the basis of his joy. He longs to hear that this church, whom he calls in chapter 4, verse 1, his joy and crown, is one in every way. The same mind, the same love, full accord, which might be more clearly translated, united in spirit, one mind. Do you hear that emphasis on oneness? Same mind, same love, united in spirit, one mind. And do you notice how all aspects of life are included? The mind, the heart, the spirit, unity of thought, of love, of disposition, of purpose toward God and toward one another. This unity that Paul speaks of is all-encompassing. Now, such unity is a defining characteristic of the Christian church. Think of those famous passages like Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. Many members of the church, yet one body. Ephesians 2, there's the dividing wall of hostility, and Christ has broken it down. 
And he builds one new man in place of the two. That's the defining characteristic of the Christian church. And we see it in all those famous passages, but we see it here in our text too. That's the point of verse 1. The exhortation to oneness in verse 2 is grounded in Paul's stirring appeal in verse 1. It brings to the attention of the believers the benefits, the very benefits which ought to produce unity in the church. And so listen again to verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Beginning with if, Paul poses four conditional clauses. Those are if clauses, conditional clauses. And Paul issues these conditionals, which he takes to be true of the Christian life in general, but of the Philippian church even in particular. So we should note, as one commentator does, that Paul says if... Not as if he doubts whether the condition is really true, but simply to emphasize that when the condition is present, the conclusion should also be present. So it's like the English expression, if you love me. It really means, show me your love. The love is not in doubt, but show it to me. And so Paul, with rhetorical force here, issues appeals to help the Philippians understand that if these conditions are true, and they are, and they exist, and they do, that the, then the conclusion, which is unity, as we saw in verse 2, should also exist in their midst. So what are these conditions? or benefits that exist in the Philippian church, in the Philippian believers? Well, in essence, they are the benefits that belong to every believer, and that includes you. Notice that these blessings, as before I get to them, have both a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. These blessings can be said to ultimately stem from the triune God, but they also refer and have in mind the benefits that individuals share and receive in the church as they engage one another. So here's these benefits. If any encouragement in Christ. Remember, you are vitally connected to Christ. You are united to Him. You are in Him and He is in you. Nothing cheers up the believer more than remembering that he belongs to Christ and is united to Him. And Christ loves to bring encouragement to His people through the Christian community. If any comfort in love. Remember, God has poured out His love lavishly upon you in Christ. 
And that love overflows into relationships of love with one another. Here the implication is that Christian love provides comfort and consolation to the Christian community. Third, if any participation, or literally any fellowship in the Spirit. Remember, dear Christians, you are mutually in fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You all share a mutual identity, mutual blessings, mutual interests with the Holy Spirit and with one another. If any, if any affection and sympathy, which could also be translated compassion. Remember, God's fond affection and tender compassion is directed toward you, God's beloved child. Any affection and sympathy that is shown to one another in the community of Christ will be a blessing to one another. Much more could be pondered. Much more could be said. But in sum, this verse reminds those who belong to Christ and to His church of the blessings that exist in congregational fellowship with one another and in mutual fellowship with God. These blessings objectively belong to us in Christ. And so for a struggling congregation like the Philippian church, both externally and internally, pondering these blessings would be uplifting, wouldn't it? To, to ponder together what is true of them in Christ. But it would also be motivating because if these blessings belong to them, to us, if they are true of us, then we ought to be unified and united. That's what the Holy Spirit longed to see in the Philippian church. That's what the Holy Spirit longs to see in this church, South Charlotte Prez. In my work at RTS, I have the privilege of speaking with many pastors and many church leaders. It's one of the favorite parts of my job. One of the most distressing results of the pandemic over the last year has been the divisions that have developed among Christians. Over the last year, I've heard from pastors, church leaders who are totally discouraged. As they've had to see their church divide over issues like wearing masks, whether to do services online or in person, whether to limit the number of people that can come on Sunday morning, whether someone should take a vaccine or not, and the list goes on and on and on. And this is just in one year. I have to be honest that hearing from these leaders has actually enabled me this week to more greatly appreciate Paul's longing and desire for unity in this passage. Disunion and division brings so much heartache and sadness, especially to your spiritual leaders who, following Jesus, are praying for your unity, are longing for your unity. They are laboring for your unity in mind, in heart, in spirit, in purpose. Let me also say this. I believe God has been really kind to our congregation 
as we have honestly enjoyed unity. Not perfect, but really remarkable unity in spite of difficult circumstances all around us. And we thank God for this, and we ought to. So, as a brother in Christ, as a future elder of this church, let me commend you, South Charlotte Prez, for your efforts in practicing unity in really difficult circumstances. It has not gone unnoticed, I promise you. But at the same time, let me also exhort you, as this text does, do not neglect to maintain and cultivate unity. We need to cultivate it, to see it continue in our midst. Just think about it. The obstacles to unity are many. Disagreements, even legitimate ones, can divide a church. Like, should we have more staff or should we have less? Should we rebrand? Different agendas could divide us. Should we do this? Should we be involved with that? Obviously, sin can divide us. False teaching could divide us. Obstacles to unity are going to come from within, but they will also come from without. And Satan, let me tell you this, Satan would love nothing more than to see this little baby church, toddler church, split and divide. He loves a divided church because it becomes a weakened church, an inward-focused church, a poor witness to the world of Christ's power to unify different people. The pandemic, I think, has taught us that unity is often easier said than it is done. So how do we cultivate unity among us in this church, in this place? Well, first, we should pray for unity. That was the, that was the prayer of Jesus his, in His very last prayer on earth. He prays in John 17, Holy Father, keep them in Your name, that, that is His disciples, that they may be one even as we are one. So we pray. We also look here in our text, verses 3 and 4, which give us a really good place to start, practically speaking. And where is that place to start? It's with you. It's with me. So let's read verses 3 and 4 again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is not changing the message here, but he is rather shifting the focus onto the individual in verses 3 through 4. He's calling for humility. And so first he addresses the negative side, doing things from selfish ambition or conceit, and he says, do not do this. Stop it. Now, selfish ambition basically means self-centered or self-motivated, self-focused desires. Do not allow yourself to be motivated to do anything from self-centered desires. Paul has actually already used this word 
to describe the teachers who proclaim Christ from envy or rivalry in chapter 1, verse 17. There, Paul says he was glad that the name of Christ was proclaimed, but he did not condone their motivation. So do nothing, not even something good like preaching the name of Christ from self-centered motivations or desires. And then Paul adds a word with some overlap in meaning. Do nothing from conceit. Now, I have to be honest. I operate with a very limited vocabulary. So, I'm reading verse 3, and I'm like, conceit. I know how to use this in a sentence. I have no clue what it means. So, I had to look this one up, okay? So, here's what it means according to the Webster's Dictionary. Excessive appreciation of one's own worth or virtue. The Greek word here is kenadoxian. It's a word with two parts, kena, which means empty, and doxia, which means glory. And so the KJV will translate this word vainglory instead of conceit. So it basically means something like groundless, excessive pride. We've all encountered big talkers who are full of it and full of themselves, haven't we? So let me illustrate for you a minute what a conceited person looks like. It looks something like an excessively proud basketball player who genuinely believes and acts on that belief that they are better than LeBron or MJ. And then you come to find out this proud high school basketball player doesn't even start on his high school basketball team. He has no grounds for his pride and for his big talking. So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now at this point we might ask, why does Paul move from a stirring appeal and a call to unity to this instruction? Here's why. Because nothing undermines unity more than self-interest, self-centeredness, or pride. If you can only focus on what's good for you, on what you want, or what important people think of you, you will never be able to think of what is good for anyone else, let alone what is good for the whole. That's why Paul follows up verse 3 with the instruction of verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, Unity cannot grow in a soil of self-interest. Unity will always require individuals to sacrifice personal interest for the interest of another. Or in other words, Christian unity will be achieved through personal humility. Thinking less of yourself and thinking about yourself less. Or as Paul puts it more positively at the end of verse 3, count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see how these two mindsets, these two ways of operating are completely the reverse? Humility versus selfish ambitions. Humility versus a conceited mindset. Considering others more significant is selfless. And it's 
absolutely countercultural in our world. We live in a dog-eat-dog world where people will do whatever it takes to get ahead, to be successful, even if it means harming another. In our world, personal brands are more important than anything else, even a corporate brand. And that's true sometimes even in the church, sadly. The world will tell you that you cannot get to the top if you consider others more important than yourselves. And you know what? Perhaps they're right. But I ask you, is that the ultimate goal? It is not the ultimate goal of the Christian. Jesus says, if you want to be first, you must be last. In other words, you must humble yourself. So this is not only a countercultural mindset, even more importantly, it's a Christ-like mindset. We'll get to study this amazing passage uh, next week that follows up our passage. But it tells us that Christ humbled Himself in the most spectacular of ways. Though He was equal with God, the supreme eternal being, and though He was clothed in transcendent glory, He humbled Himself by being born of the Virgin Mary, clothing Himself in obscure flesh like ours, undergoing all the miseries of life like we experience, and ultimately dying, humbling Himself to the point of dying on a cross. Why would Christ humble Himself to this degree? For you, church. And for any who would trust in Him alone. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her. That's what it required to save sinners. That's what it required for sinners to be united to Christ. Christ considered sinners. He came down. He came to serve. He gave Himself up. And the world has never seen an act of humility like this. And so if you're here this morning just checking us out, if you're here this morning just hearing something like this for the very first time, I ask you to consider who would humble himself to a degree like this out of love to save you. That's what Christ has done. Humility is the way of Christ and it is the way of all who follow Him. We imitate Christ. 1 Peter 5 5 says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. On this Mother's Day, I think it's appropriate to briefly recognize and thank our moms, as we've already done, both our biological moms and our spiritual moms. I cannot think of any kind of person who more consistently and more beautifully displays this kind of humility and others-focused mindset than moms. They're always thinking about the interest of others. 
And let me just illustrate this for you from our own home. The last couple of weeks, Isaiah's been breaking out with irritable skin, and he's got eczema all over the place. And so, uh, at the doctor's appointment, the doctor suggested to Sarah, why don't you cut dairy out of your diet and see what happens? Sarah loves dairy. Cheese, ice cream, butter. And so, Sarah, out of the interest of her son, has sacrificially given up cheese and ice cream and butter and cookies. All the good things have dairy in them. We all probably have a story like this about our moms, don't we? So moms, let me just tell you, we appreciate you. We love you. We're so thankful for you. And I want to say thanks for being a great example to us of the kind of humility Paul is calling for here in our text. It's this kind of personal humility that strengthens unity in a congregation. Unity is cultivated when we consider others more significant, when we consider the needs of others as significant as our own. My friends, it is possible to be filled with joy even when you are not the focus, even when you don't get your way. Because as this text is telling us, it's not about us. It's not about us personally. It's about the whole. And how radically this mindset will change and strengthen marriages and our homes, our youth group, our willingness to serve on the less flashy, the more difficult and demanding teams in this church. How radically it will change us and strengthen the unity of the body. Brothers and sisters, do not neglect to maintain and cultivate the unity that God has given us, that we have been allowed to enjoy. Since we have experienced the gospel blessings of encouragement, comfort, love, affection, sympathy, both from God and from one another, let us continue to live and minister alongside of one another in full harmony for the sake of Christ and the spread of the gospel. Let us commit to doing that together. And by God's grace, we will be a church who imitates Christ in the way of humility, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, for the good of each other and for the glory of of God. My friends, let's pray to that end and ask that the Lord would be pleased to do that in our midst. Father, these are rich portions of Scripture that you've allowed us to consider. We do not want to be hearers only of your word. We want to be doers, as you have asked us to do. And so we pray that by your Spirit, as He's already been working in our midst, may He continue to bring unity among us. May we personally seek to be humble, looking not only out for ourselves, but for 
others and for the good of the whole church. Lord, we give you thanks that you have given us the supreme example of what humility looks like as Christ gave himself up for us. Thank you for the opportunity to think of that one more time this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Bless us in our efforts to be unified and to be humble. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.